Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for tuning in again to Cut Talk Radio. Today, our guest is a distinguished figure in the fields of both psychiatry and neuropsychiatry. She began at Stanford University, where she graduated with honors armed with a bachelor's in psychology. She then pursued her medical education at Oregon Health and Science University, where she furthered her knowledge in medical, or excuse me, in medicine and public health. Her journey then continued through to the Harvard Longwood Psychiatry Residency Training Program, where she honed her expertise in psychiatry. She also served as the chief resident of psychiatry con- of the Psychiatry Council Services at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Her pursuit of knowledge led her to a two-year fellowship in neuropsychiatry at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, where she immersed herself in the complexities of the mind and its intricate workings. She has explored various facets of mental health, including sleep, memory consolidation, TMS protocols, and the Recover VMS trial. Today, she stands as one of the partners at the Seattle Neuros- Neuropsychiatric Treatment Center, a leading institution in the Pacific Northwest offering a range of cutting-edge treatments from TMS, ECT, VNS, to s treatments. She also shares her insights through educational talks on neuromodulation, both on a national scale and within the local medical community. Excuse me. Her leadership extends beyond her practice, having held esteemed positions like the president of the Washington State Psychiatric Association and the president of the Clinical TMS Society, an organization with over a thousand members. She's even testified before the Washington State Legislature on multiple occasions, advocating for improved mental health care. Her unquestionable dedication has been recognized with the service award from the Clinical TMS Society which is a testament to the mark that she's left on the field. And now I'm out of breath. So welcome to our guest, Dr. Rebecca Allen. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself? Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for, for having me and for that uh, that introduction. Yes. Yeah, so I, um, I am a practicing psychiatrist specializing in the interventions that we use for psychiatric illness when the first-line treatments don't work. So... When a person has tried a couple of medications or tried medications and talk therapy and are still feeling very ill, uh, very depressed, generally speaking, or we also treat people who are suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, we offer the more intensive kinds of treatments that, uh, that get people past that line of frustration to hopefully, you know, wellness and uh, that nothing's a cure, but the symptoms of all of these illnesses can be, you know, very well managed, and people can feel uh, feel much better and feel like their mental health uh, is back to where it should be um, with some of these interventions that that work really well. Right. Yeah. It sounds like some interesting work, definitely. And I'm sure um, I'm sure we'll get into it and we'll, we'll discuss a lot. But before we get into the technical side of your work, I want to ask a little bit about your origin story, about who exactly Dr. Rebecca Allen is. So can you tell us uh, where where were you brought up and uh, what's your story? Where do you come from? Yeah, of course. So I was brought up in Portland, Oregon, and I became interested in the brain because my grandmother, when I was a child, my grandmother had a stroke 
And a stroke is where there's a clot in the blood vessels that go to the brain. And when that clot blocks the blood from getting to part of the brain, the brain gets damaged. So she had brain damage from a blood clot on the left side of her brain. And uh, it was very sad. And uh, the loss was intense for me as a child. Also, she then lived for another decade after having had that stroke. And the effects of the stroke on her brain were, were fascinating. She, for example, had the damage on the left, but she could not move her right leg and her right arm. And I, I thought that was strange. She also, that were very much non-intuitive. So she could, for example, repeat any word that I said to her. And as a child, I, of course, had uh, a lot of conversations where I said, hey, can you say this? Can you say that? And she was very game and played along because she was you know, trying to interact with her granddaughter. And she, she could, but she could not come up with those words herself. So if she was trying to say something, she only had a very limited number of words that she could generate on her own. My, my, goodness sake, thank goodness, were some of the phrases that she could use regularly. She could also say yes and no, but they weren't consistently meaning yes or no. So she had the voice inflection, she had the emotional expression, but she didn't have the content. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. So that was one thing that brought me to this field, to, to neuroscience, to the brain. The other was that I had an uncle who had schizophrenia, probably. He avoided mental health care his whole life. So it's hard to know what his diagnosis would have been had he actually gotten evaluated and treated, but he did hear voices and he had a very hard time learning and functioning in society. And when I was in middle school, he, he did commit suicide. So there was that aspect as well that brought me to being very interested in the brain and mental health and how do we, how do we work? Uh, so I read lots of books when I was in high school um, that were popular science books, not very technical, but Oliver Sacks, the book like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, or V.S. Ramachandran's uh, books about interesting uh, cases where people had problems with the brain that were unique, fascinating. And when I went to college, uh, I knew I wanted to study the brain in one way or another. I started out being pre-med, thinking I was going to be a doctor. I did not do well in chemistry. I still, if I took it today, would not do well in chemistry. I decided, ah, oh. maybe I shouldn't be a doctor after all. I became a psychology major. I loved it. Then I got to the end of college and I was like, shoot, I really need to be a psychiatrist. So after college, I did my chemistry and biology and physics pre-med courses. So I took another year and then I applied to medical school. And then I did, in the end, become uh, a doctor and went into psychiatry. Yeah. So it seems to me that you were pretty, um, you were pre like, you know, some people have a hard time deciding. It seems that you were decided pretty early on then, right? I will say I got I got tempted a little bit by neurology, which is very similar, of course, but you end up dealing more with uh, nerve problems that are outside the brain. So it's the it's a lot about the brain, but also about the nervous system outside the brain. So that's a, a difference between neurology and psychiatry. And I also got tempted by uh, maybe being um, a gynecologist, but that was a that was a brief career flirtation. I came back around to the brain pretty quickly. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
So again, marked by somewhat, tra I mean, tragic beginnings, right? It's kind of like, uh, but but it did, but it did foster like a, a an interest where you're like, well, huh? How can the brain uh, function, continue to function, although with less of a capability? But it's still functioning. It just it just starts to kind of lose its fullness, you know. And and so was that like? I mean, how old were you when you said your grandmother had a stroke? I was five or six years old. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, that's pretty young for you know for you to be um, exposed to that kind of like, huh? Like uh, maybe grandma isn't acting like she used to, you know? So I mean, just that in itself seems to be kind of like a, uh, an insightful moment for a child to kind of like inspire wonder in some sense, where you're like, huh? Um, because then I want to know, uh, you know, as you kind of say. You've noticed, you know, like in your uncle, for example, you notice uh, maybe he wasn't behaving as, let's say, if you have a general, you would say people generally act like this. My uncle's acting a little bit out of that general, you know, zone. So did you ever have the thought where you were like, um, like, why is my brain working? Why does my brain work? Like, is my brain working? Like, did you ever have those types of thoughts where you're like, well, what's going on inside of my well, I still have those thoughts, y'all. <laughs> right? I know. I Is my brain working yeah. the same as other people? Yeah, oh I'm not sure. God. We can't see into each other's heads. How do we know? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I think that sort of social comparison is, is really common and normal. When people are struggling with something, the assumption, especially with depression, tends to be, well, my struggle is very unique. Other people have not felt this badly before or everyone around me, everyone I see is just much happier and much more functional than I am. And that's because we succumb to the faces that people put on to the way we present ourselves to each other. I'm going to digress here and just say I, I very much dislike uh, social media for this reason, Facebook uh, for this reason, because when you're looking at somebody's page on Facebook, you're either seeing them uh, tell you that they're at the worst point in their life and everything is terrible and they want to die, or they're telling you the highlights and that everything is great. People don't post, generally speaking, about you know what cereal they ate that morning and their day-to-day -day and their uh, normal, ordinary being because what they're putting forward is a need, a need to be seen in some way in the good, a need to be admired and respected in the bad, a need for some support. Yeah, I know. That's so fascinating that you brought that up. Uh, so let's just go into that a little bit. Uh, let me remember where sure. I was going to go, and then we could just side into that. Because that is interesting, and that's very relevant in today's times. The, you know, social media is relatively new um, in terms of, you know, society's impact. So I think, you know, maybe there is research being done. I know there is some research being done, but just in the future of how that affects us, you know, it seems that it's similar to, uh, what Carl Jung called the persona, right? It's like the persona is the conscious character. Who you, who, you know, it's like you know who you are, but then you also know who you, who you are presenting yourself to be. So social media is like 100% persona, you know, and then some people are more honest. Some people are vulnerable on social media, but for the most part, you know, the, the popular people, the people who get all the likes and the views, they're 100% per persona. And, and then I think, oh, so yeah, so can you go, like, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think most of the time people are not intentionally being dishonest. They are presenting 
a version of themselves that is edited. I don't think the intention is to edit and be deceptive, but people do that automatically anyway. They edit and they put out there something to get a reaction from other people, whether that's a reaction of, oh, wow, you're doing so great, I'm jealous, or a reaction of, oh, you poor thing, you know, let me, let me feel bad for you or help you, that kind of thing. I, I think it's, it's something we do in day-to-day -day lives as well in conversations and social settings. It's just very exaggerated in social media. As far as how you do research on this, it's impossible. So designing a study where you could compare people who use and don't use social media and how are they doing with their mental health? Well, that's impossible because the people who choose not to use social media have reasons to do it. The people who choose to use social media have reasons to do it. So those groups are not the same in other ways. So when you're thinking about a scientific study, you're thinking about comparing two groups of people where everything is hopefully the same except for one difference. That's the goal. That's the ideal. In the real world, it's very, very hard to do that. In clinical trials, it's possible. In the real world, uh, what are called naturalistic or observational studies, that all ends up being very difficult data to interpret. And you're probably familiar already in your classes with the concept of correlation is not causation. Has that come up for you yet? Yeah. So the classic example that's given in psychology classes being that uh, the number of priests correlates with the number of strip clubs. And what you're missing there is that it's about size of the population. It's not about one causing the other, but they go together because the intermediate factor, the connection between the two is population of the city. And population of the city, you have both more priests and you have more strip clubs, but there's no actual causal relationship. So, so in the in the real world, it's really hard to look at that. And we have this generational thing where every generation something comes along that's new, and the older people are like, "Oh, that's so bad for those kids." When I was growing up, it was television is so bad, video games are so bad, and now on top of that, we have phones are so bad, and social media is so bad, and it's really hard to tell what the reality is in there. My own opinion about social media, though, is that when a person is not doing well, when they're feeling down, when they're feeling out, looking at a bunch of others presenting the best versions of their lives and all the excitement and none of the humdrum daily gives people uh, a, a reason to socially compare and feel even worse about themselves. That's interesting. And I think I, I would say in my personal opinion is definitely the case. I mean, in my personal experience is definitely the case that you tend to get low, loathsome in, in like scrolling and stuff like that. You kind of like, you can, you can start to impose a lot of falsehoods on your own life based off of that. Like, Oh, it's because I'm this, it's because I'm that, that my, uh, my life isn't as good as their life. Maybe right. stupider. Maybe I'm, you know, I'm so poor and, 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 and incompetent or, and then if yeah. you're already prone to pessimistic type thinking, if you're already somewhat of a easily depressed person, then that can just throw fuel on the fire. You know, it can just accelerate. But then also on the other side of the one who's delivering, right? You mentioned maybe they're not doing it intentionally, but isn't there something to say for us, for a social media, a system that when you're doing the best, and I've seen this, so it's, it's anecdotal, of course, but people when they're doing their best when they have you know things to show off it's like 
it's like run to social media and show it off. Like put it in front of everybody's face. Like, and that to me, to me, that kind of indicates that the thing itself isn't what people want. It's like they want the recognition of having the thing, you know? And that's very human. That's very human. I think that that's an aspect of human behavior that we cannot undo because it is so ingrained. We are social creatures and we very much want to be seen positively by our peers. And what that means is very different depending upon our culture and who we think we are and who we want to be and who we admire. But the need to uh, to have social acceptance um, is is so strong and powerful. And there's a lot of positives to that too. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I think it can, yeah, like anything, right? It's like you can take an idea and take it to its extreme worst or you can take it and take it to its extreme best. But okay, yeah. so I want to go back to your studies and stuff. But before we get there, one last question on the social media stuff. What is yeah. your overall, being somebody who knows the workings of the mind, what do you have to say about this current state of society, which what I would say is uh, monetize attention, get people's attention, and 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 that that becomes currency in itself. Like I think a lot of the corporations co are consciously aware, right? These people are spending millions of dollars on R and D, research and development. Which I mean, in my opinion, I think that goes into how can we psychologically uh, condition people into becoming consumers of our product. And because that's utilizing the psyche again it's itself, and maybe people aren't aware of what those processes. It might also have other conscious and subconscious effects. So, but what's your own uh, just assessment of that system? Uh, or do you even, do you disagree that that's even going on? Oh, I would say that my opinion on that as a professional in mental health is, is no more valuable than yours. You are in this world. You are a podcaster. And I don't think that expertise in mental health or medical education gives me a very special perspective on that. I will say... When I was an undergrad, I heard about lots of studies being done at the business school at Stanford that were as rigorous and complicated, many of them, as the ones being done in the psychology department. So the business world does have a really pragmatic foundation in research studies about how people work, how people's minds work, how to influence it is it is uh, an evidence-based practice, the kinds of advertisements and media that we are exposed to. Yeah. Um, and you know, the the thing that this is all seeded from a video that I saw in like middle school where where they were like, um, it was like they would drive people through to this uh, study, this focus group, and then they would like have them draw stuff. And then like later on, you like, they show you and they're like, oh, look on the way, like there were advertisements that were like showing stuff. And then the people didn't even know that everything they drew was all because of what they were seeing. And then yeah. so it's like they had been hacked into subconsciously without even yeah. being aware of it. But but that's not that's not necessarily new. That's just what the mind does. But we're just not aware that it's happening anyways. So it's like, yes. And might, uh -huh. that effect is called priming. Priming. Okay, yeah, there yeah. You go. I might have had something like that to do in the yeah. title, but but yeah, ever since then, I've always been like, well, obviously they, you know, they're competing for the same customers, so they have to find out some advantage. So it's like, how do we make the most like 
psychologically effective, you know, using ethos, logos, pathos, things like that. Like, how do we do that? But yeah, that's that's a little bit into the consumer side of the country. But of course, uh, one one more thing on social media that your listeners might find amusing. Social media makes lots of people the worst versions of themselves because there's no immediate feedback. You don't have the facial expression. You don't have to have the consequences for whatever you say in real time. You can say hurtful things and there's no uh, feedback where a person is showing you the hurt and arguing with you. You can sort of put out there the worst possible thing and just leave it. What is very uh, funny to me and sad is that there is a social media platform called Doximity that is only for physicians and people are logged onto that using their real names and they still, in the chat kind of uh, responses under articles or topics, uh, devolve into the same kind of worst versions of themselves really? that people do when they're anonymous. It's so, pretty remarkable. That is fascinating. So, okay, okay, yeah, because I've heard that. I've heard that. I've heard the case that that is the the reason because people are anonymous because they have no no consequence, but you're saying that in this example people still so is it is it just no face to face is it no is it kind of like a, a numbing to the social like circumstances because you know if you're in a group of five people there's a lot more to consider than just being in front of a computer i think it's the lack of relationship with the people you're talking to and if those people hate you or think poorly of you even if they know your name What's the worst that could happen? That's if a person's thinking it through logically. I think lots of these statements are people wanting to have an outlet for angry thoughts, and they're not thinking that much about the recipient or whether they're hurting other people. You know what? I've also had this kind of thought about it, and tell me what you think. It's like like um, the, the Mona Lisa, right? You know, we recognize the Mona Lisa as this great historic painting. It's just, it's legendary. But... Yep. Anybody today can just come up with a critique because it's like, oh, well, it's already been made. It's in the past. It's an idea that's already, here's the idea. Now I can add on to the idea. So I think social media kind of does that to people as well, where it's like, if I give an opinion on social media, obviously it took some amount of, I'll say bravery because you knew, you knew that like when you're honest with your thoughts, you know that you're vulnerable to critique. You could, you could say something in the way that you want to say it. And then people will be like, look at this idiot. He did use this word wrong or he used that wrong or he did this, you know. And and I think that's sort of where it lies as well, where it's like it's a bunch of ideas and and everybody can see the flaw in an idea that's already delivered. because And that's why people don't often don't deliver their ideas because they're, they're afraid of those critiques. So that future side of being like, oh, well, once I give my opinion, people are just automatically given the the authority to critique it. And some people, the critiques, the the critics are going to, are always looking for an opinion to be like, oh, but this opinion isn't complete yet. Oh, and I can see exactly where you can build upon it. Oh, uh, so then they'll, they'll often be like, oh, um, I'll, you know, just to give an example, I'll give my example, right? One time I left a, a comment on a video about Vikings or something. And I said like, oh, Vikings used to use ships a lot. So, you know, they were better at building ships than us or something like that. And then somebody's like, Oh, well, actually, Vikings are like, you know, and then they give like this Wikipedia entry on Vikings. And then I'm like, my guy, 
this is not a competition. And I think the fact that people see it as competitive in the sense of, I want to be the most right. I want to correct everybody. Like, do you think that has something to do with it at all? Especially in the academic well, I think, field. I mean, you want to be the smartest. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, and you see these same dynamics play out just in a more muted form in all age groups and all levels of training and academic backgrounds. People don't ever actually get beyond this, I will say. And whether you feel like you can or should critique or how seriously your critiques are taken depend a lot upon how you look and what your name looks like and uh, other factors where there is um, the societal expectations really play themselves out in a lot of arenas here. That is interesting. It's, it's interesting how like ego and those types of things can like intelligence doesn't kill your ego. You know, some, so for some people it makes them even more, um, uh, what's the word? Like it makes them more arrogant, you know, like you're smart, you get smarter, you get more arrogant for some, some people will get smarter, they get more humble, you know? So, I mean, it's interesting how, you know, just speaking about the brain and its workings and the way things can happen. Like there's no recipe. It seems to be what somebody would call a good person. It's kind of like you have to consciously be making decisions to not impede on other people. You Yes, exactly. Being a good person is, first of all, difficult to define because people have different ideas what that means. It also is something that one has to work at. It's not you're born this way or you're born that way. There are exceptions, of course, but it's about the decisions we make every day and the hand that we're dealt and what we're taught uh, by our experiences and interactions, especially when we're young. Um, how the world treats us. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so if we could so let's go back to uh, so you once you got your education and you started to practice a little bit. Yeah. Um, how was that experience? Like, was it fun? Once you're able to go and start to become a part of these pro, uh, programs, you know, director of various programs, fellowships. Um, you know, you did it all. I mean, you had a, a an awesome journey from what I read here. You know, you were able to have experience in many different institutions um what was that like for you what, what, what was some of the most um sure well i mean just taking a step back because I, I i don't want it to seem like something it's not my path was a other than you know going to some good places but my path was a pretty standard one for a psychiatrist first you go to college for four years then you go to medical school for four years and then you go to residency for four years. And I added a few in there. I worked a little between um, undergrad and med school. In med school, I did an extra year to get a master's in public health and biostats and epidemiology. Then after I did residency, I did another two years of uh, training, and that was fellowship in uh, behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry. So, so I have a specialty and a subspecialty. But the, the path is long for, for all of us. Uh, who are physicians going down this path. So when I was in medical school, the last two years of medical school, you're in the hospitals, in the clinics, but you're not doing a lot. You're observing, you're learning, you're interviewing some patients and writing some notes and not doing a very good job of it, probably, but trying. 
then when you get to residency, you are actually a doctor. You you have the degree, but you are not in the U.S. allowed to practice independently at that point. You have to do a training program and you are under very close observation and supervision and you're getting uh, criticized and you know feedback and uh, every single day, really, for four years that you're that you're working. So there's residency, I think, was a lot of fun. It was very interesting to do something different uh, at first every two months and then in the later years of residency every six months but you're rotating through different services and seeing different ways of practicing in different settings and getting a sense of the breadth of your field and that was an amazing experience as it turns out i gravitate to a certain population I very much like working with people with severe mental illness and in particular with severe yeah. disorders. And so when I was choosing, well, where do I go from here? I'm training. What kind of life job do I pick after this? Do I stay in an academic institution and try to apply for grants from the government to do research projects? Or do I go entirely into a solo private practice and sit in an office and see patients one-on-one, -on -one, or do I do some kind of group? It was not an easy decision, actually. I did make what I believe is the right decision for me. I joined, after I left Harvard, I joined a practice here in Seattle, which specialized in interventional brain medicine, meaning, uh, brain stimulation, electroconvulsive therapy is one, uh, one treatment that we offer. And the other, when I joined this practice in 2017, was transcranial magnetic stimulation. And since I joined this practice in 2017, so I, I'm still working at the same place where I went right after I finished training, we have added S-ketamine, we have added IV-ketamine, we have added ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, we have added therapists at all. We didn't have any psychotherapists in our clinic when I joined. We've grown quite a lot from uh, two locations to now five. And also we did not have any clinical research going on when I joined and, and now we do. We have a, a growing clinical trials program here. We're a, we're a site for some clinical trials. So it's been, it's been quite an, an adventure and I love doing these interventions because it's such a joy to see people get better. And it is so great to be able to say, I have something else to offer you. You are not done. You have not tried everything and you need to give up now. I don't say that because there is something else. Yeah, definitely. It's always good to get to offer hope. You know, I think, yeah. I think hope is hope. I think that even in itself in some way can can either help or hinder the healing process you know they say like if people um get cancer and they become like very like you know sad and kind of like they don't they lose activity that can actually uh further the process versus somebody who continues to live you know pushes their body they might even beat the life expectancy with the cancer you know they might say they give them six years they might live for another 20 something like that, you know, so I think hope is very important, but honest hope, right? You need to, on, you can't just tell people like, Hey, you know, it'll be better without any substance, you know, but actually having right. 
something there to be like, oh, look, there is this treatment. And I, okay, right. so I do want to get into that. So you mentioned a few of the treatments just for the listeners listening. Uh, so three acronyms, you know, TMS is transcranial magnetic stimulation. ECT yeah. is electroconvulsive therapy. Um, and VNS is the Vagus nerve stimulation. Vegas. Okay. Uh, Vegas nerve. Vegas. 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 Yeah. Um, okay. So let's begin, if we can, just um, so how does the brain work? What is going on in the brain? We should have this mushy thing up here that looks like, uh, I don't know, a mush. And somehow that's that lets me do this. It lets me talk. It lets me do everything. It lets everybody do everything. Uh, what's going on? How many years do you have for me to answer that question? <laughs> so a guy named Steven Pinker wrote a book in the 90s called How the Brain Works. And, or it was How the Mind Works. But uh, it was very controversial. And some of the reviews said the, bra- the brain doesn't work like that. So you, you can simplify things and inevitably you get it wrong. Anytime you try and simplify something, you are saying something that is inaccurate because the complexity is always so much higher than you can express in a short, easy to understand version. So I'm going to say something now that is short and easy to understand, but is also technically a little bit inaccurate because it's way more complicated than that. So the brain is made of neurons. Those are, that's the name we have for brain cells. And around the neurons are support cells. And those support cells help give the structure to the brain and also help the neurons function. The brain has different areas that do different things for us. The most notable being the motor strip where there is kind of a map of the body on a a line Uh, sort of a diagonal line, but on a a line on the side of the brain. And the different parts of that strip, motor strip, move different parts of your body on the opposite side. And for the brain, that's about as simple as it gets. The motor strip is a a pretty basic and easy to understand part of the brain. If I take a, a coil, a TMS coil, which is sending a magnetic field into the brain, and I stimulate over the hand area on the motor strip, the hand moves and nothing else because that's all that spot in the brain really does. When we were learning about the brain 200, 300, gosh, even 100 years ago, a lot of the information came from people getting brain damage. So people had strokes or people had hits in the head or this one particularly famous guy, Phineas Gage, had a rod, he was working on a railroad, and a rod went up through the front of his brain. And scientists, physicians, learned about how does the brain work, what do these different parts of the brain do, based upon seeing how these people changed, what deficits they had when different parts of the brain were damaged. So this theory came around that different parts of the brain do different things, and sort of a, a segmented kind of a departmental uh Um, idea. So an organization where every department does something different and they're located in different parts of the office building. The modern perspective on how the brain works is a little bit less compartmentalized and more network focused. That these different parts of the brain, some of them talk to each other a lot 
and send lots of messages back and forth. And other parts of the brain talk to each other less, less often have less strong connections between them. So for example, there is a circuit that is involved in forming memories. There is a circuit that is involved in emotional regulation, which as you can imagine is the circuit that I think about quite a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And the circuits have different parts to them. And depending upon how these parts are talking to each other, how loud the different parts are and how strong the connections are to other parts, the circuit either works really well or it doesn't work as well. So how does the brain work? There are neurons that send signals to each other and send signals to other parts of the body. And that's as simple as it gets. And from there, it's levels of complexity and understanding uh, what different parts of the brain do and how we become who we are. Okay, so um, is it fair to say then, because a lot of these, again, magnetic stimulation, electric convulsion, nerve stimulation, is it fair to say that these are electrical processes, as strange as it may sound, that that there's... That's a really good question. So I didn't get into this level of detail, but um, is there going to be a video version of this with a visual yes, aid? Yes. Yeah, okay, one second, one second. I have a giant neuron in my office. <laughs> and so this is a very cartoonish uh, representation of what a neuron is. And so these, this end right here, where the cell body is, uh, these receive information from other neurons that are connecting to it. And that information is used to either propagate an electrical signal down this part, which is called the axon, or not. So if a signal is sent down the axon, then these parts at the end connect to other neurons and contribute to telling those neurons what to do. And many, many neurons connect to many, many other neurons. It's not a, except in very basic movements, like moving my hand, where there's uh, a sort of one-to-one -one connections between neurons. For the most part in the brain, it's a, a really complicated, lots of neurons connecting to lots of other neurons uh, in, in ways that are um, similar but not identical to a computer. Um, so the connections between the neurons, so when, um, when a neuron here is talking to this one, are uh, chemicals. So you have uh, chemicals uh, going across a little space between the two cells and um, and influencing the cell that receives the chemical. Along the neuron, it's an electrical signal. So when we're thinking about biological interventions for brain diseases, including mental illness, we're thinking about, do we target or affect directly the chemical signaling between brain cells, between neurons, or are we trying to uh, target the electrical part where we're propagating signals along the the axons of our uh, of our brain cells that makes sense yeah okay. so so this guy would connect that end to the to another one's end like that yes. and then yes oh. yes and i can't um i have a how oh, do i have a small version yeah so if you take if you take like this is a neuron and this is a neuron they would connect like that and a bunch right? of those make up the brain a bunch of those plus their support cells. Yes. 
And how, so, wow. So, I mean, okay, how many of those are in the brain? But A lot. And I'm sure all of your listeners can can Google that. That's something where it's unlikely to find, like, you know, false information on the right. internet. Right. You, you, know, you, you always, are, people are constantly losing and gaining, right? Because sometimes. Yes. But we're not losing and gaining cells necessarily. We are sometimes. But we're losing and gaining connections. So the the axonal connections, the axons connecting to the, the receiving end of the neurons, which is called the dendrites, those are constantly being strengthened or weakened or created or broken. So when you and I right now, when we're having this conversation and we're forming memories of what we just talked about in the last 30 seconds, so we don't repeat ourselves, this is what's physically happening in our brain is these connections are changing. And there's terms for this. So long-term potentiation, LTP, if you want to use acronyms, and doctors and scientists just love acronyms, but long-term potentiation is where if a connection is used a lot, that connection becomes stronger and more sticky. So the more often you practice a piano piece, for example, the more those connections in your brain that you are using in order to move your fingers in such a way to play the piano piece become stronger and stronger. And it's the same if you're studying for a test, when you are learning these facts and reviewing them over and over and reading them to yourself or reading them out loud or memorizing lines for a play, the way that those connections become sticky um, is through long-term potentiation. Okay, so now let's connect this back to your work as a psychiatrist, right? In the psychiatry field, neuropsychiatry. So you have some brain cells, I'm presuming, that control things like motor functions. But then you also have, um, I believe it's called the limbic system. Yeah. And it has to do with emotions, memories, things like that, right? Uh, so can you explain the limbic system a little bit and what its function Yeah, and it's, it's not just the limbic system, right? So the emotion regulation circuit involves the limbic system and also involves some other parts of the brain that are a, a little bit more in the in the frontal areas, and that's that's relevant uh, to what I do, particularly with with transcranial magnetic stimulation. So the limbic system are deeper structures in the brain that have to do both with memory and with emotional uh, regulation, and it's more known for the emotional regulation piece. You know, when when you're taking a psychology class or an early neuroscience class, you think limbic, you learn to associate that very tightly with emotions. And the limbic system and frontal regions of the brain, um, I have a brain model too, if you want to give me just a second. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So the limbic system is a very old structure in the brain. And by old, I mean evolutionarily, it's been around for a long time. And we see it in creatures that are a whole lot more uh, simple than we are in terms of the structure of their brain. So the limbic system kind of down in the in the middle of the brain. Um, then the parts of the brain that are also relevant to mood regulation are more um, in the front and particularly in the middle. This orangey thing right here is called the cingulate. And by the way, uh, it's like this is a half a brain and it's like you're looking at it like this, where this is the front and this is the back. All right? Um, and these circuits connect to each other in a very, again, simplifying something to the point where 
any scientist listening to this who's in this area is going to be like, that's not quite true. But simplifying <laughs> it in a way that's true enough, the the limbic system in depression is a little bit hyperactive, generating more negativity and uh, fear and caution and avoidance, right? And the frontal parts of the brain are not strong enough in terms of questioning that and dampening it down and having a circuit that is balanced and functional in regulating emotion. That's a pretty common theme in psychiatric illness is that you have some parts of a circuit being more active than they should be and other parts of a circuit being less active than they should be. Okay, so so essentially it's uh, sort of like... Uh just a malfunctioning kind of right or or yeah. is it, if only like, it were that simple but yeah i know i'm trying yeah. to simplify it because i'm like i yeah. know it's not we all? At all. but it's like yeah. yeah so i guess you could say essentially it's the the brain like is there a is there a, a normal brain like is there something that you would consider just okay this is exactly how it's supposed to function well there's such a huge this is a problem right because there's such Spectrum, a huge right? It's either a problem or a beauty in human nature, but there's a huge range of normal. And so trying to find in an individual human, well, what's abnormal here is nearly impossible. So this is something that I think is is important to understand, but difficult to understand. Most people in the general public do not get this, that brain science is all about groups and group averages. And in order to see the difference between uh, what a brain is like or doing in obsessive compulsive disorder, you need to take a group of people who have obsessive compulsive disorder and look at all of their brains, whether you're doing it with um, uh, electrodes on their head or you're doing it with some kind of uh, scan. You're taking their brains and putting them together in a group and you're comparing them to people who are similar in age, gender, whatever, uh, but who don't have OCD. And when you do those group comparisons, you can see a difference in, well, this group has this thing going on that's different than this group has. If you do that with just two individuals, there are so many differences that you have no idea what is actually important or relevant. So there are, and I would I would warn your, your listeners to be wary of this, but there are, um, I would say, less scrupulous physicians out there, or sometimes not physicians, sometimes um, other professionals in healthcare, who will claim to be able to scan your brain and tell you what's wrong with it. <laughs> there has to be something really, really obvious wrong with your brain in order to do that. We cannot look at a brain, especially with a structural scan, uh, where you're looking at a picture of how the brain looks, not a picture of like the blood flow moving to different areas over time. Right. MF, it's MF, very, MRI. yeah, fMRI, exactly. The difference between structural MRI and functional MRI is what I just referenced, exactly that. So it's it's very hard to look at a brain and see anything other than, wow, there was a big trauma there because they got hit in the head, or wow, you know, there's uh, less brain in this part of uh, the brain than there should be. And by the time you're seeing that, it's it's pretty dramatic. Now, our imaging is getting better and better, and especially in the field of transcranial magnetic stimulation, there are scans that are 
getting more and more research to back them up and we're uh, on the verge of this being available widely in a, in a clinical way where you can do a very specific kind of functional MRI and look at the strength of connections between two parts of the brain, one more superficial and one deeper, and use that to try and find the right spot on a person's brain to stimulate. But that is a really narrow, very specific right. uh, look at a very specific thing in the brain. It's not looking broadly at the brain and saying, well, I see this problem and I see this problem and you must have this and this. We can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe that was the simple explanation. My brain's already about to explode just listening to that. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know what? It it is it is also that, right? It's like you're also the brain. If you think about it, you're the brain trying to figure out the brain. So it's like Yes. So that's You're so right. You're so right. There's right. a limit, I think, to what we can we didn't evolve for this, you know? Right. Not at all. Right. And if you think about it, you know, it's like you, you mentioned how like in the past few centuries there's been significant developments in uh, neuroscience, like psychiatry, things like that. I know psychiatry yeah. had a renaissance pretty recently as well with like even the introduction of, I think it used to be called like alienation or something when you would like treat people's brain. I'm not sure about this, but I know there was something like that. Like they used to call it something else before it was called psychiatry. And this was like, it was treated completely different. Now we understand that it's something internal to be focused on before it was external. But you know, like the cavemen, they weren't, thinking about what was going on in their brain they were just using it they were just well using wait it. a minute how do we know oh or maybe they did it i don't know right I mean, we can't look that. at their skulls and know what they were thinking right that's true that's i think true. that uh, yeah. introspection and wondering and curiosity is a very human thing and whether we put that outwards or put that inwards i mean all of the stuff that people had to say about the stars right all of the explanations we came up with for where we came from and why and how all of that goes to people being uh, a little bit complicated and in our thinking from very early on. Yeah, you know what? That is interesting though, because uh, you know I'm from I'm I'm of Mexican heritage, and and so our indigenous history in Mexico goes all the way back to like twenty thousand BCE. Like this is like yeah. Olmec, and they were even the Olmec people, the Toltecs, the early people. They were very uh, artistic. You know, they yeah. were very, like, they would carve large stones of people and things like that. So it's interesting, like, that had to be some expression of an idea that they were having. Like, like they are imagining something in their mind, and they're like, I don't know, let's carve a stone and show people what's in our head. Right. Interesting. Oh, I think um, it's a logical, I think it's a logical, I could just say one thing on that. I think it's a logical fallacy to, uh, but it's tempting, to think about people 1,000, 2,000, even 4,000, 6,000 years ago as being not as smart as we are today. And that's not true. They were as smart. They had less information from previous generations to build on. So we are not smarter, but we are more knowledgeable because we are building on what we can learn and read in school and, you know, the Internet and whatever. It's it's a matter of information piling up and being passed along, not a matter of our brains and their ability to think and analyze at all. Have you noticed any um, shifts in just the perception of mental condition, the perception of certain um, uh, certain conditions, and then how they're treated? Well, there's always changes in perception, some of them good, some of them not so good. What I have seen, generally speaking, in the time that I have 
been practicing as a psychiatrist is both more of an acknowledgement of mental health as a problem or a real thing, and also an increasing belief that it's easy to treat and that anyone can understand it or anyone can uh, intervene in ways that are meaningful and that it isn't really much of a, a science or a branch of medicine. So these two kind of contradictory things, like it's very important, but it's also anyone can master it and it's easy. And it's it's been very interesting to see that dichotomy because what has happened a little bit is a change in the level of expectation of education and background in order to uh, treat mental illness. And that's been a reaction to this perception that there are not enough people out there who can treat mental illness. And if you say that it is not as hard as, say, neurology or cardiology or gastrointestinal medicine, then it's easier to justify having people who have shorter training courses filling the same roles or trying to provide the the same care. Uh, so it's been a very interesting shift. And I would say that the positive in that is that people are thinking more about mental illness and they're thinking more of it as a public health need. So the stigma around mental illness, I think, has actually been slowly decreasing over time. And where I see that the most is in my field directly, one of the treatments that I do that my practice does is electroconvulsive therapy. The reputation of electroconvulsive therapy is much better now than it was, I think, 20 years ago or 30 years ago because of some people who have been willing to speak out about how it's helped them and some of them being public uh, figures. So I, I think there's a lot of change always in a field. And and do you, um, this is a little off topic, but I'm just wondering, because I always have this question, when it comes to the educational uh, system, do you, do you feel, um, and of course you went through the standard, like you mentioned, your route was pretty standard, but do you feel that it's the best that it could be, or do you think that we still have improvements to make on the educational system? You mentioned how it can be arbitrary, right? Like you can say, oh, uh, it's, it takes this long. It takes this long. It's decided by a board, but it, it, is it where it needs to be? Is it possible to take less time to have the same effectiveness in terms of education? Or do you think it takes more time? What's your opinion? I, I think there's a lot of controversy around this. First of all, I'm going to say, I think psychiatry is harder than a lot of other fields of medicine because the brain is so much more complicated. It, you're it's not psychotherapy, right? It's not social work. It's neuroscience-based understanding biological interventions that impact the most important organ in our body. So when I think about psychiatry as a subspecialty of medicine, I don't think of it as easier or simpler than neurology or cardiology or gastroenterology. And as psychiatry gets more and more of these procedural interventions, it becomes even more complicated. So I think that it's very, very hard to learn everything about everything. 
And the system of training doctors, and especially in, in other countries, the training is much shorter, was designed during a time when there was more of a reasonable expectation that you could learn almost everything or the majority of medical knowledge that the world had. Now it is absolutely impossible, or it's, it's probably always impossible, but it's more impossible now than it used to be because the amount of knowledge that we have is so vast and changing so rapidly that the most important thing you learn really in medical school is first of all, some basics so you can understand what you're reading and have a framework to put your information as you go along. But you learn how do we know stuff? And if you don't learn how do we know stuff, then five years, eight years, 10 years out of your training, you are not gonna be good at your job because everything information wise how do you practice uh, is different is going to be different because more information comes along more studies are done and you have to keep up and figure out well is this bit of information enough for me to change what i do for my patients or do i need to wait for something else to add to this information or agree with it so the most important thing to take away from education in medicine is how to evaluate evidence and figure out whether it's actionable or just interesting. Uh, and that is, I think, um, something that medical schools and residencies have been working on doing more of uh, in recent times. And when you shorten education quite a bit, so for example, people who, who practice medicine but who do not go to medical school, that tends to be a part that gets missed or glossed over in favor of trying to cram lots of information into a short period of time. And it's if you don't have the foundation of understanding how do we know stuff and how to evaluate that, it's it's harder to be a, I would say, an informed consumer of scientific papers and information. Um, so when I think about education, though, I tend to think that where we need the most help and work is in our elementary and middle and high school education. I think once a person is getting to medical school, they've done so well at things and medical schools are so tightly regulated that it's hard to go really a lot wrong at that point. When we have, as we currently do, a culture that is increasingly anti-education, an increasing belief that education is not valuable, that everybody can learn anything and you don't need to go to school for it. A, an anti-elitism sort of uh, thought that people who you know go and get educations and get PhDs and doctorate they think they're so great and they're not and they don't know more than me there there is this uh, deprofessionalization that's happening in our culture and especially happened uh, over the past the time since 2016 I will say yeah, yeah, um, sure. yeah. and and we're feeling it in in medicine um, actually really? the sense of being devalued that well, doctors really don't know anything. You know, I can know I can know the same thing as a doctor does. Um, and they think they know more than me. Well, they're arrogant, right? And well, but I actually have a total, you know, amount of education and years of supervision where I had better know, <laughs> I had better know a lot of stuff or else, you know, uh, what am I doing, right? So. Yeah, you know what? Okay. First of all, thank you for that great assessment because I mean it's very it was very thoughtful and I can tell this is something you've actually thought about. 
And that's why I wanted to ask because it, for that exact reason, that, that divide that you mentioned that is occurring in society, uh, it's, there's no doubt in my mind that it's occurring. I see it, you know, even if you mentioned like, uh, if we go back to our conversation about comments online, I mean, you know, you can have somebody and, and this is, and we, I mean, this, this can be attributed to different things, but you'll see people publish scientific studies on the news and people under the comments will be like, oh, it's just the government again, lying about something or something like that. Right. And then you get this strange, like grouping where people group educators, uh, the students, the professionals that come from the education, the government that funds that education and the ideology behind it all into one big thing where it's like, this is all one thing. The teachers, the students, they're all part of this ideological thing to right. push this right. agenda. And then that's what it is. All of this together is that. And they completely discount the science part of it, which is like, there's no denying that you had, were educated. And I think, I, I do think the most important things that need to be covered are things like terminology, for example, procedural things. Um, obviously, you need to, if you're going to be a surgeon, you need to know what you're cutting. You don't just want somebody cutting you open without sure. knowing. So things like that. But you have to keep learning new procedures your entire career. Right. So, so the procedures you learn during your training are not the same as the ones you're doing 10 years later, right? In my mind, what it all comes down to is with the science education, it comes down to methods. Understanding the methods of how do we know what we know. The logical thinking of science is really, really against human nature. Human nature is not to objectively look at, well, this compared to this, where there's only one difference between the two, and what difference does that make? Let me think about this systematically. That's not how we think in day-to-day -day life. That's not how we make decisions. And so it feels very unnatural. We have to learn it, and we have to fight against our own tendencies in our thinking processes in order to be scientific and logical in our thought processes. Um, I, another thing that, that came up in my mind when you were when you were um, talking about that, uh, have you heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Is that something that's come up in your classes yet? Not in my class, but I know what it is. Yeah, the, you know what it is? Yeah, so, thinking that you know more than what you really know. Yes, exactly. So the way that it comes down, as, as I think about it, is you don't know what you don't know. If you know a little bit about a topic, it feels like you know a lot. And that's what happens in medicine. People read a few articles or they watch a few videos and they think, okay, I know all about this. And there is, the more you learn about a topic, the more difficult and complex it becomes. So I have no illusions that I know a lot about the brain. I know more than most people for sure, but do I know a lot about it? I mean, no, there's, there is so much that scientists over here and scientists over there looking at different aspects of the brain at the cellular level, at the network level, looking at mouse brains and looking at dog brains and, you know, the kinds of research that is painful to, to read about. But these, these people are siloed and, and deep, deep experts in the aspects of the brain that they study. And do I know all of the stuff that they're doing and coming up with and all of the receptor types that they're looking at and all of the details of how these new drugs differ from one to the other and how they interact with those receptors on the neurons. No, I don't. What I know is how to understand the information when I look for it. Um, but I, I have a very deep and hopefully healthy respect for how complicated 
my field is and how impossible it is to really know um, even the most, even the majority of information of human understanding of the brain. You know, and I think it also comes from this, um, the, what people refer to as postmodern ideology, the idea of, 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 of re-evaluating every single aspect of science, like to say that, like, which again, comes with a very mis big misunderstanding of how science came to be in the first place, like how a lot of this stuff is empirical today, why we, why we consider it as fact or as theory rather than just a guess. You know, people think, oh, no, that's just stuff the scientists made up. It's like, no, they, they ran experiments. A lot of this stuff, you could run the experiment for yourself if you have the equipment. And you'll see the same result over and over. Things like that, you know. Um, and and the method, you know, the method is always important. You know, going back to Descartes, who kind of established the, the elementary scientific method of just, okay, if you sit down, you could think yourself into insanity. You could say, oh, how do I know that I'm looking at anything that's real? Oh, what is all this stuff? You know, oh, maybe I'm going crazy. And then Descartes said, well... Okay, well, I won't use this. I won't use this because this this is imagination. This is creativity and perception. I'll use empirical evidence. I'll use things that I can externalize and recreate, you know, which is a right. scientific method. You go with the hypothesis. You uh, test your hypothesis. You gather data. You uh, re replicate the data. You know, you make sure that it can be redone over and over based on, you know, of course, it's more complicated than that. But, you know, that's the basic idea. You have an idea. You test it. The test has to be repeatable and it has to be accurate and, you know, things like that. And then you can draw a conclusion based off that. Mm -hmm. But it's not just coming up with things, you know. And I think that also if we go back to that idea of simplification, right, because I think in good faith and with good intention, scientists do have to simplify a lot of things. And I think when they're simplified to the point that you know, anybody on the street can understand it, then they get the idea, well, it's just that simple. If I can understand it, then it's just that simple. It's as simple as it seems. But they don't understand the effort that's being put in to simplify. Like when you mentioned, right, neurons, like, yeah, they're little brain cells that are interacting, but then, you know, you mentioned you've got neurotransmitters, you've got things that are happening, you've got the brain is choosing which ones to activate and which ones not. So they're, they're kind of like, they're, you know, if I want to move my arm, all the all the priority needs to go to the arm movement. You know, this is happening in milliseconds. You know, yeah. but I get I think that inclination to simplify and then mix with the with the culture of our current society, which is like we tend to move towards like blaming things on some systematic oppressive force rather than the fact that we've come to these conclusions based off of our own experimentation with the world around us, you know, which is an interesting phenomenon. I think, I think it is a very interesting phenomenon that's happening right now. Yeah. The fact that it's like, it's like, and that's what, that's where my question of the education comes from is the fact yeah. that I think that the educational system over time has become antiquated. And although it's still effective to a degree and I, you know, I, I don't disagree, you know, I'm not one of those people that's going to say, you know, your education is invalid. You know, I respect what you got and I respect what everybody who's educated is doing because they did it consciously, you know, so they made the decision to do that. So, you know, they went through the training, they've earned their stripes. However, I don't think that means that the system that trained them is perfect. You know, I think it, it's, no, it's, it's still perfect. Right, right. But I think right. that's where a lot of the, of the, the popular complaints come from is the idea that we can still improve upon the system. But Right. You know, most of it is just uh, criticism with no actual uh, offer for a solution. You know? If I may, I think a lot of this has to do with very real economics. So 
in the past 20 years, and I'm not going to cite data here because I don't I don't have it at hand, but I do know this is there is data to back up what I'm about to say. The the value, the literal value of a college degree in terms of how much more you can get paid, how many more job opportunities you have versus the cost of getting the degree is actually lower than it used to be. And so I think that the college system, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to figure out what's going on there. I think the real problem, though, is that our free education, the elementary school, the middle school, the high school, the education that is supposed to give everyone similar or preferably the same opportunities in order to learn and to launch, that that system is getting intensely controlled by governments who uh, very much want people to remain in ignorance in lots of ways because it suits their needs uh, politically. And also the teachers are underpaid. The system is underfunded. None of that is new, but it is getting worse. And this notion of controlling what it's taught is really setting people up poorly for for being able to make good choices and be strong uh, thinkers. So in our community, especially, this is an issue, right? Is the fact that education is the fundamental of uh, of what it means to be a human. The way that you're right. socialized, the way that you're educated, will ultimately determine how you function in society, or how you how you operate in society, rather. So. You know, that's a great point. You know, I think it was Jean, Jean Piaget that said that education is not just teaching, but it's built, giving people the tools to discover the next level of what we will eventually become, you know, which is, I think, the essence of education. But what it has become, especially in our working class communities, is uh, a farm for, for money. I mean, it, it's what it is. You know, the, the teachers are significantly apathetic about the outcomes of the students they don't really i mean you know i didn't, i don't want to put the blame on the teachers necessarily but that's just what it is i think it's it's all a big system where you know like we mentioned the the degrees themselves are not valuable right so so if somebody goes into school right into college and they're looking at options right they're not sure what they want to do and they're presented with options well you got you guys this you got that and then you got the teaching credential program and the teaching careers program, you get this and you get that and you get these benefits and you get this this thing and you become a part of a teacher's union. And I think for a lot of people, that's the default most attractive option, whether they care to teach at all. Well, I, I you know, I I don't want to I don't want to invalidate your observations because your observations are uh, as valuable or experience as anything I have to offer. Well, I, I, I think that the the system is very much set up to value and devalue people in different professions and the teaching field is particularly devalued in our country and our culture and so until we can change that perception that teachers uh are the most important people you know that are extremely valuable that they should be the top people going into teaching uh it's it's going to be a hard problem to solve but getting back to to medicine just for a moment, because I'm I'm not an expert on public education. I have opinions about it because I'm a product of public education myself. Um, but I I see myself as a physician. I see myself as an educator, not just giving talks or 
teaching residents or teaching medical school students or anything like that. It's teaching my patients what my role is in my day-to-day -day practice in talking with patients is to very respectfully assess what's going on with them and what they see are the symptoms and problems that are the highest priority to treat, what would help them improve their life the most. Because depression, even though I treat a lot of depression, it's not the same in every person and their priorities are not the same for every person. And then educating patients on the options and teaching them about what this is and what that is. And for me, it's a lot, well, what is TMS and what is ECT and what is S-ketamine and how is that different from regular ketamine? And, uh, and explaining the pros and cons of all of these options in the context of their life and their illness and helping them make a choice, but not making the choice for them, right? Okay. So it's, yeah. it, it's something where it's really important important um, seeing your physician as the teacher, not the dictator. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. So follow me here. I want to, I think, I don't think, I don't even think what you said really went against what I, what I was saying. Cause I was kind of going in that direction where, where it's like, yeah, see, that's the issue is like, is that the, okay. The teachers are definitely one of the most important, right? Edu educators, right? Let's just say educators for sort of to not sure. focus in on teachers, but yes, the people who will pass on the education in, in any culture, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In indigenous cultures, there were always people assigned as the wise ones that would pass on the culture. It's, it's some, it's a place in society. And I think, uh, again, the emphasis on those people is very important because if people lack education at that fundamental basic level right when they're early when they're developing if they're not getting that that foundation built in their mind in their knowledge then then what i'm seeing is that and maybe i'm wrong but eventually this could evolve into the misunderstanding of something like health right it's like because people do, do, yes. do form this stigmatization against you know even like psychiatrists even people like that and it is from a lack of education at least partly where they're like yeah. They don't understand why it is that talking to somebody can help you. They don't understand why medication can, what it actually does in your brain to help you. And they, and then there's a, a fundamental misunderstanding in how, how all that tied together is the field. You know, the field is not the evil institution, you know, but I think at the, at the basic level, when you don't have that, that just, you know, essential need you know what i would call like you know an essential layer of education to at least keep you bring you up to speed to the culture society that you're in what we have is we have an entire class of people that are behind in a generation of, of knowledge in some sense is some way that, in a way that i could put it yeah. and so then you have this whole divide in society where it's like there's people who are literally right now building the future and then there's people who are literally 50 years in the past in their education because they, they didn't get taught the, the fundamental public education system that's supposed to bring you up to speed to the current cultural standards of, of education failed. So now you have people who are just whoo, way back here and now you have people that are whoo, way up here. And then yeah. this divide here is just so hard to close. And you are so right that it affects people's attitude towards healthcare and their ability to pursue healthcare. And I think it does come to education and it does come to this Dunning-Kruger effect. I think it is a little bit 
uh, interesting. I have observed that people who know less about medicine or have less education in the sciences have a higher expectation that they should be able to understand all the details of how their medications work and how their brain works, but without having a foundation to really get there. And it's an interesting phenomenon in psychiatry that goes, I think, to the stigma in the field. People don't have that same expectation that they're going to understand in detail how all of their gastrointestinal drugs work or how their liver drugs work or how their heart drugs work. But when it comes to treating their depression, they want to know exactly how this thing works and why, even though that is so much more complex than uh, than any of the other uh, examples that I just brought up in, in different areas of medicine. A, a good example of this was in 2022, there was a lot of publicity around a paper that came out, um, quote, debunking, uh, end quote, the, the serotonin hypothesis of uh, depression. And it was written by a couple of people who are involved in organizations that are uh, anti-psychiatry and anti-psychiatric medication, and they are absolutely entitled to their opinions. And the way the paper was written was a misrepresentation of what they did and what conclusions you can really draw from that. What was very interesting about seeing that as a professional in the field and seeing how it was presented in the media was that I have never, as a even as a psychology major, whack in college, or a medical student, or a resident, or practicing psychiatrist, I have never thought that depression was as simple as some kind of serotonin deficiency. That doesn't make any sense, right? Just because uh, aspirin treats your headache doesn't mean that your headache is because of a lack of aspirin, right? So it's always more complicated than it seems. And the data about drugs working has actually nothing to do with why they work. The way that we figure out how drugs work is by taking two groups of people who are almost identical in their characteristics, as close as you can get, randomizing one group to get the drug, the other group to get a placebo, and people don't know what group they're in, and you compare are the results in terms of improvement in, say, depression, different in the group that got the real drug versus the group that got the sugar pill. And that data has absolutely nothing to do with any theoretical underpinnings for why the drug works. So what they did in this paper is they said, well, the serotonin theory is debunked, which nobody in the field really believed it was the thing anyway. This was something that was propagated by drug companies trying to oversimplify in their commercials and animations, something that is not simple, but they wanted to simplify it for marketing reasons. So that's where that really came from. Um, and then saying, well, because the serotonin hypothesis is not true, therefore serotonergic medications, antidepressants that affect serotonin shouldn't be used. And that was just a logical leap that was not logical. It was, it was uh, um, very weird to those of us who are in the scientific field that the the theory of why something works changing would somehow impact the data on that it works right yeah that's and i think that's a combination of 
uh, uh, just marketing, you know, like that's something that, that people do anyways. They just make like, oh, it's one in 10 scientists say that this product error, you know, it's like some of that stuff you, you really look into it and then it's maybe it's not exactly so a, a bit of miswording, a bit of sense, sense, sensationalization by the media. And also, I think that's taking advantage of, again, this, this state of society that we're in where people are quick to jump on an idea without even understanding what is being said. Uh, yes. Which, again, is goes back to like, you know, like the, the SSRI studies, right? It's like, okay, okay, this thing isn't, uh, you know, like to say, okay, it's a serotonin, it doesn't mean they're, they're so this. And then from to go from that to say, okay, scientists and their whole understanding of neuroscience is off now. Like what? Like that doesn't even make sense. Like that yes. serotonin well, is just, one neurotransmitter. You know, can it's I make like, a parallel? Can I make yeah. a parallel? If if Please. this were say a, a medication that treats cholesterol, and there's a theory for how that medication treats cholesterol, and it's been you know sold to the public by drug companies, and then some paper that comes out and says, wow, those drugs don't work the way we thought they did. Would you think that that paper would then say, oh, and because we they don't work the way we we thought they did. Therefore, they don't work at all and you shouldn't use them. I don't think so. I think it's something to do with this notion in psychiatry that it must be easy. It must be simple. And that if you don't know exactly how something works, then that must mean that it doesn't work because it's all about theory, not data. But it's actually all about data. And the brain is so incredibly complicated that we are very often... Uh, not correct in our understanding of why what we do works, where it's very easy to show does something work or does something not work comparatively. It's harder to show the why and the mechanism and the how. Yeah. And then, and then those mechanisms, right? It's like the thing yeah. is like, again, just the complexity of life itself. So like to try and to try and assess a, a, a biological organism uh, as complex as a human, you know, it's just completely difficult. And, and because we are the ones doing it ourselves, there's obviously some limit somewhere, but we're always pushing the limit. But then when you have that constant, like the constant pressure, right? I, I would consider it a pressure by society. Yeah. And I think, I think what people interpreted it as is challenging science. And I think there's no problem with challenging science because scientists need to be challenged. They need to be, you know, you know, people and they, scientists love a challenge, right? They want to be wrong so that they can. Well, find not the scientists, the science, right? Yeah, the science the itself, answer. right? Yeah. Right. Yes. Definitely, and and I think yeah. science, it's you know, science is not a thing. Science is a method. You know, science is the method yeah. for which we extrapolate conclusions that we can yes. say are scientific. This is a scientific conclusion. It follows a scientific method. Therefore, this science, you know, and then you get people who kind of um, want to challenge the conclusions of scientists without any basis besides the fact to say that some of the some of the studies in the past. This is something that people often say. Some of the studies in the past have been proven wrong or or it's been found that they were altered or data has been manipulated, things like that. But to attribute that type of behavior to science as a whole is the same as saying that one person in a neighborhood stole, therefore it's a neighborhood of thieves. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you, you always had the bad apples and everything, but for some reason, when it comes to science, the new age attitude towards science is like science is one thing, one group, one entity, 
and then it can be attacked as such. But I think that for the sake of society and for the sake of our civilization, you know, that's not productive because science has always worked through, you know, it's weird because this is kind of like a Galileo period for science. Strangely enough, like we're more, we're, we're supposed to be more intelligent the way we talk about it. But it's like we've reverted back to that, like, question everything the scientists say, you know, and that, that kind of, I think, halts progress, that halts scientific progress, you know, but I don't know. That's, yeah. If I could comment on that for a second, I mean, scientists, we often don't do ourselves any favors by being so very uh, methodological and soft in our conclusions as we should be, as is the right thing to be, at the end of all of our papers, what we're supposed to do is say what the flaws are in our own research and how maybe it could be interpreted differently and how maybe a different study could do this or that better. That is normal in our writing. But politicians or advocates look at that and they see weakness. They see, well, you did this study and you don't even believe what you wrote. Therefore, it must not be true or it must not be something that we should act on. It must not be a strong enough finding for us to do something about. And we saw this really prominently during the, the COVID era, right? The 2020, 2021, especially these um, politicians uh, and members of the public and news media with no background at all in the scientific method or understanding that all science is, is a really rigorous version of logic. That's all it is. But looking at these papers and seeing, well, they all say at the end that it's not fully conclusive and that we don't 100% know anything. And all papers say that always. But that being our method of communication with each other can make it harder for the public to really understand, well, no, this this is actually, this is a real thing, right? This is a real thing that's been replicated. We, we're pretty gosh darn sure enough on this that we should act on it and do something about it. And set our public policy based upon this information, right? I wanted to ask you, we haven't gotten to sort of talking about the specific treatments. Did you did you want to get to that? Or is what we've got, is this good for, for what you wanted to cover with your- uh, Yeah, that's actually what I was gonna, that's actually what I was gonna ask in terms of- Yeah. Um, you know, uh, how, so we've talked about like the whole process and all this stuff. So pertaining yeah. to your field, how, how do you get into uh, or how did the field get into the idea of stimulating the brain, using techniques to stimulate the brain? You know, we mentioned uh, TMS, trans, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So so how does that become an idea and, and how does that be integrated? How does that get integrated? I mean, it's a, it's a very, very, very old idea, this notion that we could send electricity into the brain or magnetic fields into the brain and be able to do something to influence the brain. And this was an old idea even before we had any ideas about the brain being chemical or electrical or how neurons worked or that kind of thing. Um, the application of electricity stimulating the brain to treat diseases is actually quite old. So electroconvulsive therapy has been around since the early 1900s. And while there was, especially in the 60s and 70s, lots of publicity that uh, made ECT look barbaric or awful or a way to control people, 
Uh, I think that was actually much more true for lobotomy than for ECT. And people often kind of equate the two because in that movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he had ECT. And then in movie time, only a few minutes later, he had a lobotomy. So people think about the two as being very similar. And they're definitely not. So electroconvulsive therapy has, for the most part, been tried and delivered in the context of desperation of having very little to offer for people with mental illness and trying things to see if they work. And that's the story of psychiatry right there is desperation because there was so little we could do for mental illness until ECT and then until the first psychiatric medications like the lithium and uh, Thorazine came around. So we, um, we have the data over time, over decades, and then in more modern times, really, really rigorous studies showing that ECT actually does work extremely well. It's considered the gold standard for treatment of depression. That's mostly what we use it for in this country. Worldwide, ECT is used more often for people who are hallucinating, people who have schizophrenia. And that's because generally speaking in uh, non-first world countries, the people who get any mental health care at all are the people who have the kind of illnesses where they're psychotic. So uh, ECT is a really effective treatment. It works in 80% of people who have severe treatment-resistant depression. Nothing else comes close to that. Does it have downsides? Yes. Yes, it does. Everything does. Is it barbaric? No. No, it's not. Um, and so the uh, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is the oldest of the treatments that I do. Um, and we still do it because it works. And my God, if it didn't work, we wouldn't do it, right? <laughs> the, there, there's, right? There is no uh, like evil scientist, ha ha ha, I wanna you know, do this thing that <laughs> doesn't work. Yeah. Right, we, there is no motivation whatsoever for doctors to do things that don't work, really. I mean, there's not. And um, so then there's uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a much, much, much newer technology. And the idea behind these forms of brain stimulation that have come out and been tried over the years is always to try and get something that's as good as ECT, but doesn't have the downsides, like doesn't require general anesthesia, doesn't have temporary memory and cognitive side effects. So TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, came along and was approved uh, or cleared, I should say, by the FDA um, in the you know 2008 2009 period, and then has really become more and more available since then. Is it as effective as ECT? No, no, it is not. Um, and there are efforts being made right now to refine TMS protocols, to use TMS protocols that are based upon uh, neuroimaging in order to do the protocol differently and target in a custom way, and those technologies are looking really promising and we might be able to come close to uh, the level of efficacy of ECT, but we aren't there yet. And we haven't shown that uh, even these new protocols work as well as ECT in really, really sick populations, like the kind of populations that would normally get ECT. So, so TMS, what it is, is it's taking uh, two tightly wound coils of wire um, this is a figure of eight coil. There's different kinds of coils, but I'm going to explain the figure of eight one because it's the simplest one to understand. So two tightly wound coils of wire and the two coils, these two circles overlap in the middle like this. 
and it looks like a figure of eight. And electricity is pulsed through the two circles, the two circles of wires. of the electrical current. And so we're not after the electricity, we're using electricity, but what we're after is that magnetic field. And so the coil is placed on the head so that the magnetic field is going perpendicular down into the brain. And it's a very targeted treatment. So unlike electroconvulsive therapy, which stimulates large sections small part of the brain. Even the biggest coils, it's still less stimulation than what you get with ECT. And when you're thinking about stimulating a small part of the brain, you have to pick carefully where you stimulate to be a spot in the brain that's meaningful for whatever you're treating. So for depression, for example, the spot that we stimulate is around about here in the left frontal area. And this is not the only place you can stimulate for depression. It's not the only protocol. So for all of my colleagues who watch this and they're like, that's not technically true. This still is the spot in the brain, the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, where most protocols for depression are stimulating. And this is, this is the majority of what TMS is used for, is stimulating this part of the brain for depression. Um, and so when you stimulate that part of the brain, the theory, what you're trying to do is increase the activity of this part of the brain so that you can balance the network, so that you can exert some top-down, because this is higher thinking areas of the brain, so top-down control over the limbic system, which is uh, hyperactive and doing more than it should. So trying to get a little bit more balance in the circuit. So that's what TMS is. And then there are other treatments out there, uh, vagus nerve stimulation is, um, and I have one, so just give me a second. Uh, vagus nerve stimulation is brain stimulation, but it's not inside the brain. You're stimulating a big nerve that goes to and from the brain. This is the battery pack that is used uh, for vagus nerve stimulation. The battery pack is implanted under your, your soft tissue, so if you pinch right here, um, the battery pack goes on top of your muscle and under that tissue that you can pinch. And the battery pack's implanted right about here below your collarbone. And then there's this wire. The whole thing's under the skin. This wire is also under the skin. And the ends of this wire are wrapped around your vagus nerve in your neck. And the vagus nerve, uh, what that does is it's the part of the autonomic, meaning not conscious, but the nervous system that regulates our gut and our heart rate and our pupil dilation and our sweating and all of that stuff, the vagus nerve is the uh, um, relax and digest part of the nervous system. So stimulating that nerve um, will change the function of multiple parts of the brain. And that's what vagus nerve stimulation is. It's just an implant for severe, very treatment-resistant depression. Then there's also the ketamines. And ketamine, for all intents and purposes, is just another drug, but it's a drug that has a different mechanism of action from the drugs that you take orally at home. 
and it has a higher chance of working than those drugs that people take orally at home. And ketamine uh, also tends to need to be administered in a, in a physician's office. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so all those treatments and are those like the four most effective in the current um, state of neuropsychiatry? Well, so it depends what you're talking about, right? So when I'm talking about depression, which is far and away the thing, the, the condition that we use these treatments for the most, ECT is still the most effective. TMS and ketamine, I think the data is a little bit unclear which of those work better. And it depends on how you're delivering the ketamine and it depends on what TMS protocol you're using. But TMS, we typically say with the standard protocol that's been around for over a decade that most people use works in about five to six out of every 10 people. Um, ketamine and S-ketamine, you can cherry pick different studies and say, well, it works in eight out of 10 or seven out of 10. And you do see some uh, websites for clinics, you know, showing that data. And it's not a lie per se, but if you take the average of all the studies looking at ketamine and S-ketamine, um, it isn't actually quite as high as all that and might not be, um, might not work in uh, more people than TMS does. Um, so that's where I would sort of rank them in terms of how likely is it to work, is nothing beats ECT. And then people deciding between TMS and ketamine, one of the ketamines, so there's S-ketamine, which is intranasal insurance covered, there's IV ketamine, which is off-label. Um, often they're deciding based upon the logistics, you know, how easy will it be for me to actually do this treatment? How often do I need to come in? How long do I need to be in the clinic? Can I drive myself home? How much is this going to cost? Is my insurance going to cover it or not? So that that tends to be, it tends to be the same people who are considering TMS and ketamine and a lot of the decision-making um, doesn't have to do with me saying what's going to work better, but with other factors. Yeah, right. I can and then VNS is, is the thing that one does if you've been sick for a really long time and it just isn't being helped by things that you're trying, treatments that you're trying, or if it, if a treatment works, it doesn't work for very long and then you're right back down into depression. Or maybe you've even tried electroconvulsive therapy and electroconvulsive therapy worked, but it didn't work for long enough, couldn't maintain the benefit. Those are the kind of people where you really do think about would an implant make sense for you. That's interesting. I have a quick question there. So is there any any pattern in people who aren't, it isn't as effective at all, or is it just kind of like case by case? I mean, I think that that's, um, there's lots of answers to that question, right? There are lots of studies looking at the characteristics of people who do and don't respond to different treatments. I would say a general rule of thumb is the shorter your episode of depression has been, and the faster it came on, the more likely you are to pull out of it completely. People who have been uh, sick with depression for many years and have not had periods where they're doing better, it's harder to treat. That doesn't mean they're not going to respond to something. I've seen many people with this very prolonged, terrible depression come completely out of it with electroconvulsive therapy and then have to figure out, well, how do I build a new life? as a not depressed person? What do I do with myself? You know, how do I approach the world and my activities and restructuring? And, um, and that's a great problem to have, frankly, right? 
So I, I've seen that happen. When you're talking pure numbers, though, the people with these shorter, faster onset episodes um, and people who've had periods of remission in the past uh, have a better chance of responding to really anything you try. Yeah, that's fascinating because it kind of links back to what we we're talking about, like the perception and things like that, like how how if your perception is already programmed to be in a, de in a depressive mindset, mind state, then without that depressive foundation, you kind of have no foundation. Therefore, you have to, you know, like you mentioned, the rebuilding of the character. That's very fascinating. Um, But yeah, just to end off the last part here, I want to ask. So pretending to the future of where all this is headed, I know one of the most interesting in my opinion one of the most uh yeah the fastest growing things is the idea of brain machine interfaces you know like uh i know elon musk in introduced the idea of uh a Neuralink, you know linking cr uh, creating artificial connections within the brain whether to stimulate parts that aren't working or just to advance parts that are already working to advance them to a higher degree so i have two questions there what do you think yeah. about that mechanism if you've looked into it at all. And my second question is, do you think, and this is pure speculation, this is this is a question that I just want you to have fun with. Do you think that at some point in the future, we'll be able to create a complete 100% diagnostic system of the brain where we can like, like a, a doctor can plug into your system and say, okay, we see 80% function in this, 80% and where you'll be able to literally create a sensor that, like diet like can diagnose the entire system i mean that would be cool that's the dream we can't really do that with any organ though and every other organ in the body is much simpler than the brain is so i think we're a really long way from that uh with any organ but especially with the brain i think the idea of machine brain interfaces very interesting. It's more philosophically interesting than pragmatically interesting at this point. There are people who um, are studying different ways to implant devices into the brain to stimulate the brain from the inside. This is already a treatment that's really common in Parkinson's disease. Uh, it's various interventions to stop epilepsy. Some of them are the, the VNS, the same kind that we use for depression is also used for epilepsy. Some are more invasive uh, into the brain itself. Um, and and the, the devices that are being looked at is still in um, mostly research settings on putting electrodes in the brain to stimulate some deeper structures to help improve depression uh, are uh, up and coming. And um, there is already a procedure of implanting electrodes in the brain for obsessive compulsive disorder. It's not very common, but it is actually a, a treatment. It's, it's beyond experimental uh, at this point. So we, we have these, you know, putting stimulators in the brain, uh, brain machine interface. It's very rough. You know, we're not able to go in and like pull out a memory or even rewrite memory or read a memory, right? It's the, the detail there we don't know what a memory really looks like in the brain uh because it's on such a small uh scale that it's it's hard to see um all of the connections that like light up or stimulate when you're thinking back to you know that time you you got stunned by a bee in kindergarten now that said we we know lots and lots about how memory works and doesn't work and a lot of that pertains to you know eyewitness statements and 
um, how valid your memories are, how couples can give each other memories. So if you hear your partner tell a story over and over again over the course of decades, at a certain point, uh, there's a phenomenon where you can feel like it's your memory, like you remember it. So there, there are created memories in this way that is a phenomenon that can happen. The idea is that we're actually recreating a memory every time we access it. So every time we access a memory, it changes because we're remaking it. It's not like a watching a video, right? It's not the fidelity is not there. So I'm not sure if that answers your question about the cool Elon Musk stuff. You know, I, I don't really know a lot about what he's specifically thinking in that regard. I do know he's not a neuroscientist. So whatever he's putting out there is, is going to be way more complicated than it's sounding right now. There, um, the more, you know, sort of immediate uh, indications that might actually work with current technology would be more motor. So having something that senses brain firing and then um, produces some kind of robotic movement um, based upon uh, sensing firing in the brain directly, that's something that um, is actually uh, feasible. And more complicated, like having a plug-in where you can get then go into a virtual reality world. I mean, there were movies about that when I was growing up. <laughs> I think that sounds really cool, but also way, way beyond uh, where we are uh, right now. It's so much easier to put goggles on, you know, for that. Yeah, I think it's, I think the fundamental idea there is like, um, you know, just like AI is like, uh, at, at what point do we have to step outside of our capabilities with our biological structure interfaces and, and to advance it, use external technologies, you know, but I think, I think more relevant is that question of, we don't even understand necessarily what's going on inside of us. So maybe we need to f focus more on painting that picture better. You know? But Raul, you and I are doing that right now. There's <laughs> nothing plugged into our brains, but we are using right. technology as an extension of ourselves right. in order to talk to each other over this amazing so distance. In real time, it is so weird if you stop to think about it. Yes. Yeah. No, for sure. Well, uh, I mean, I've taken so much of your time and I appreciate you being willing to come on here and share it with us. I mean, it was a fascinating conversation. Hopefully we can, we can continue it sometime in the future. Uh, Pleasure. And now, of course, I want to say thank you. Is there any last words you want to leave people with before we get out of here? If you are struggling with depression or any mental health issues um first of all don't try to diagnose yourself don't go on the internet and be like well i must have this or this understand that people who are mental health professionals therapists psychiatrists psychologists we are here to help you understand what's going on right so coming and seeing somebody in the mental health field is first about uh, them trying to understand and help conceptualize and help explain what's happening to you and then after that, trying to help you figure out what treatments, uh, if any, might be worth thinking about or trying. So I would just say, keep an open mind about what might or might not happen or what might or you might or might not um, come away with if you go and see a doctor about a problem. And I've seen so many times people um, really hurting themselves with foregone conclusions. Uh, an example being 
uh, my father refusing to go see a headache doctor because, well, I know what it is and all they're going to do is offer me opiates. And it's like, no, actually, you don't know what kind of headache it is. And there are many different medications out there that are not opiates that are used for headaches now. Uh, and and it's, it's the same with going and seeing a doctor or a mental health professional. We are teachers. We are advisors. We are not scary. Um, and I, I would hope that, that you would, um, if you're having difficulties, really um, give yourself a break and seek help. Great advice. All right. So, again, one last thank you to Dr. Rebecca Allen. We'll have her stuff in the description. If you guys want to go, go ahead and check it out. Uh, and, you know, or just say hi. Say thank you for the conversation. And as you can tell, she's very well-knowledged well educated on this subject so i'm sure she'll be willing to talk to you whenever she has time um and yeah guys it's been another episode of cut talk radio as always you know the deal take care be safe and peace